The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3. Ecclesiastes 3, another long passage, but it's important, I think, to take it all at once because the beginning is explained by the end. So I'll read Ecclesiastes 3, beginning in verse 1, going all the way down through verse 22. And remember, as I read, as you listen, as you follow along, this is the word of God. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, so that, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let's pray together. Our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We would be in the dark if you had not revealed yourself to us in and through it. But we confess that there are many times when we approach your word and find it difficult. We pray that this morning you would give us ears to hear. We pray that your spirit would be at work working through your word to convict us of sin and to train us in righteousness and to thoroughly equip us for every good work. 
And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the January 20th, 2020 issue of the Harvard Business Review, there was uh, an interesting article about the nature of work and about the nature of what companies should look for in workers. And the title of the article was this, Time Management. It's about more than life hacks. And what the article went on to say, it was a thoroughly researched article as many in that journal are, the the article went on to say that there, there were really two major points at issue here. One is that understanding time matters. In fact, at one point, the article says, the author of the article says that this is one of the most important things that anyone in any business can be aware of. It's one of the most important things to look for in an employee, understanding time. And then the second point, which is implied in the title of the article, is that understanding time is about more than just basic tools of efficiency. And that really becomes the substance of the article in the second half of it. And the reason why I think this is worth our attention this morning is because this chapter, Ecclesiastes 3, which contains probably the most famous section of Ecclesiastes, that is verses 2 through 8, has everything to do with understanding time, with understanding time rightly. Uh, The writer of Ecclesiastes recognizes that understanding these truths about time, these truths about the time of our lives, is of critical importance to getting to the big issues of life. And so we can divide up this text into two major parts. The first part, verses 1 through 8, really verses 2 through 8, are this poetic uh, series, this poetic song almost, this this psalm, we might say, that has to do with time and the nature of time and the correct circumstances for various activities in the midst of time. And then verses 9 through 22 give applications of that. Uh, What are the implications of this particular view of time and of the circumstances of life? And so in keeping with those two headings in the text, verses 1 through 8 and then verses 9 through 22, I want to draw your attention this morning to three observations from this poem, this two through eight section that's so well known, and and, and the application that we can draw from those observations. And then in verses 9 through 22, I want to focus in on the three conclusions that the author draws based upon what he says in that little song, verses two through eight. Now, just a little review about this famous section in verses two through eight, you see the way in which it's all set up. It's set up in these, in this series of couplets. Uh, there are, there is a time for one thing. And then the author seems to say, there's also a time for the opposite of that or the inverse of that. So there is a time to be born, but there's also a time to die. And the implication is that it is appropriate at some points for someone to be born at one point for someone to be born. And it's appropriate at the other point for that same person to die. Uh, Similarly, he goes through the various activities of life and indicates that there's an appropriate time for both kinds of things. There is an appropriate time to plant. There is an appropriate time to uproot. There is an appropriate time to mourn. 
and there is an appropriate time to dance. And in one sense, all of this is obvious, but the implication and the first observation I would make about this is that when we look through these, some of them are unambiguously good in our mind, and some are things that we would consider to be bad, or at least things that we would want to avoid if given the choice. And and some of the pairs don't fit neatly into either category. To give a few examples, in verse 8, he says there is a time to love. We would consider that to be an unambiguously good thing. It's something that we're commanded to do as Christians, to love one another, to love our enemies. But then he goes on to say, there's an appropriate time to hate, and that might introduce questions in our mind. In some cases, there are things that don't seem to fit neatly into either category. When he says there's a time to keep and a time to cast away, neither one of those is necessarily good or bad in our minds. We know it's just entirely contingent on the circumstances. And I think this This leads us to one of the applications that we can draw from this little section at the beginning. And that's this, that one of the points that the author is trying to drive home in this series of couplets, this poetic section at the beginning, is that life requires wisdom in knowing how to steward the time that we're given and to deal with the situations that arise. So we would all have to acknowledge that there are times in our life where it is entirely appropriate. In fact, it's the only thing we can do to weep. And yet there are times where weeping would actually be inappropriate in a given situation. And laughter is appropriate. And so one of the things that the writer is trying to get across, and it's sort of obvious, I think, on the surface of this, is that life and the circumstances of life, the times of life, require wisdom. Uh, They require us to determine what is appropriate at the appropriate time. It's not enough to say you should always be laughing. You should always be embracing. You should always be loving everything and everyone in the same way. No, he says, there is, in fact, a time for many different kinds of things. And so it pushes us, I think, to the other texts, both in Ecclesiastes and in the rest of our Bible, about the proper use of wisdom, uh, the proper way of discerning what's appropriate in a given situation. And that leads to a second observation about this section at the beginning, which is this, that the times for each pair aren't necessarily specified. In other words, he doesn't say there's a time for war, and I'll tell you exactly when that is. Uh, when circumstances meet these specific conditions. Now, he doesn't say that. In fact, he leaves that decision kind of hanging out there as something that we uh, need to exercise uh, wisdom in. And he doesn't even say uh, that there's going to be the same amount of time devoted to each of these things. In other words, he doesn't say that in the next 168 hours of the week, You're going to have 84 hours in which it's appropriate to embrace and 84 hours in which it's appropriate to refrain from embracing or 84 hours where it's appropriate to go to war and 84 hours in which peace is the appropriate response. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't promise that. This this poem doesn't tell us that all of these things are going to be measured out to us in equal portions throughout our lives. 
In fact, again, it drives us to the need for wisdom, and it reminds us, these first eight verses remind us that life is inherently, from our perspective, from a human perspective, life is inherently unpredictable. You all know people in your lives who have experienced far more sorrow and suffering and pain than you have. You all know people who seem to be forced into difficult engagement with others in service of the truth more than you ever have. Or perhaps you look at yourself and you think you're the one who falls into that category. I've had more pain, more sorrow, more weeping than anyone else I know. Well, this this poem at the beginning should lead us to expect that kind of unpredictability. It doesn't always fall out in the way that we might want for it to. The third observation I would make, and this is why I think it's so significant, so important for us to read the rest of the chapter, and I think this is meant to be read together with the commentary that follows in verse 9. In fact, you probably noticed as I was reading verses 9 through 22, he references some of the phrases from this poem in his commentary on it in verses 9 through 22. I think that's, that's so important because taken just on its own terms, in other words, if you simply lifted verses 2 through 8 out of the Bible, out of the of Scripture, out of the context of this passage, and used it as a kind of mantra for yourself or a way of making sense of life, as many people do when they hear this song in the folk song from the 1960s, you'd have to conclude this, that there is a certain beauty to this description of life. It's poetically arranged, but in and of itself, taken out of context, abstracted from the Bible, abstracted from what the writer is about to tell us, beginning in verse 9, there's really no basic meaning to it. It's a kind of cycle, not unlike some Buddhist pictures we might get of the repetitive nature of life, the unpredictable nature of life. And that, I think, should drive us to a very important observation and really something we need to look for in verses 9 through 22, which is this, that without an end goal, without a telos, we might say without eschatology, this is very bleak and meaningless. It may be an accurate description of what we face in life, certain times that require certain responses, but it doesn't give us any guidance or direction in and of itself. And not only does it not give us guidance or direction, it really doesn't give us a whole lot of meaning. But when we move to verses 9 through 22, the writer then, I think, makes three significant points which do apply this clearly to us, which do show us not just the observation about life, which is true in verses 2 through 8, but the real meaning of it, the real telos of it, what we should take away from this description of life in verses 2 through 8. The first point he makes beginning in verse 9 and really going through verse 13, is this, that in the midst of this uh, unpredictable uh, picture uh, of the way life plays out, 
in the midst of this unpredictable picture, there, there is a, a joy that is meant to be gotten from work and toil. And this might be a surprise to us because the writer has already told us in chapter 2 that there is a sense in which, uh, apart from God himself, this work and toil can just lead to uh, the accumulation of wealth, which is then passed on to someone else. But here he focuses on the earthly joy that is provided by toil. Work itself, the writer says, in the midst of the unpredictability of life, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. You don't know exactly what the future holds. And yet in the midst of that, one thing he says is that the work God has given you to do has meaning and is meant to bring its own kind of joy. Here's what he says in verse 11 when reflecting on the nature of work, on the nature of what God has given men to do. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, he goes on to say that that doesn't necessarily mean we can draw a straight line from the work that he's given us to do and a certain result from that work. In fact, that's really the point of verse 11. He says he's put eternity in man's hearts. In other words, we, we, we have this innate longing to understand how all of this fits together, but actually we can't fully appreciate how it all fits together. God, man can't find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. It's a very realistic portrait of how our work fits into the overall tapestry of what God is doing. We know that there must be this eternal significance to the work God has given us to do, and yet we can't quite piece it all together. We may have glimpses here and there where we say, ah, what I was doing had this significance because look at how the Lord used it in someone else's life, or or look at how it led to me learning a particular lesson. But the reality is all the details of it are going to be opaque to us. We see as in a mirror dimly, Paul says. What does Moses say? The hidden things are of the Lord. He's put eternity into man's heart, yet he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So what's his conclusion from that? Well, his conclusion, as I've already mentioned, is that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live and eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. What the writer of Ecclesiastes says as a result of the unpredictability of life is that we are to do the work that God has given us to do, to take joy in that work, recognizing we won't understand, we can't understand all the ways in which that fits into his wise and eternal plan, but nonetheless to take joy in it despite not knowing all of those things. And that that joy in work is actually a a large part of what God has given us in this life. In a sense, to go back to Deuteronomy 29.29, we need to follow the same logic as Moses follows there. The hidden things are of the Lord, Moses says, but remember, he doesn't stop there. The things revealed are for us and for our children forever that you may observe all the words of this law. You you will not understand all the hidden things. 
you will not necessarily see how your little bit of work during the brief time God gives you, it's a kind of breath, remember, the writer says. You will not understand how that fits in, but, but what is it given to you to do? Well, to do the work and to observe all the words of the law that God has given. There are seasons in life, not necessarily neatly situated seasons, when you, when you may not know even what to do next. But the writer says, the enjoyment of the blessings God gives at any particular season, whatever those blessings may be, is the correct posture. Every good and perfect gift, James tells us, comes from above, from the unchanging Father of lights. And there's a second application here that comes out of this poem in verses 2 through 8. And it comes in verses 14 and 15. Despite the fact that we do not know or always fully understand the role our work plays in God's plan, here's what we do know. We do know that if God decides to do something, then it will happen. And he is the only one who can change things in this way. Look at verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Then he goes on to say that which is, that which has been, that which is to be, already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. The point he's making is this, that the only, in a sense, true change, true intervention into this seemingly meaningless cycle, when taken on its own terms, is what God himself does. Now, now what should be the application then for us? We need to be sure that while that we understand that while life itself is unpredictable and is out of our ultimate control, it's not out of God's control at all. God's sovereign over all things. He ordains all things that come to pass. He doesn't exist in the succession of moments that are described in verses 2 through 8, the kinds of things that we are subject to as creatures. And furthermore, we should be focused primarily on being about the work that God has explicitly given us to do. What a great gift we have in the scriptures, in God's commands. He tells us the things that he requires of us. He tells us the things that we should invest in. He tells us the things that we should care about. He tells us the things that we should support. He tells us the ways in which we should use our gifts and order our families. He tells us the way in which we can come to him in worship. Why is that such a gift? Well, it's such a gift, first of all, because we'd be in the dark without it. But second of all, because we know that the only thing that remains is what God himself does. We want to be about the business of what God has told us to be about in his word. Doesn't this give a kind of security to us in the midst of the unpredictability of life? I don't know how 
God is going to use your life. I don't know how God is necessarily using my life, but I know, I know what he's commanded. And I know that while I can't understand the full picture, obedience to those commands is what's required. And none of these things are outside of God's control. The third major application that the writer draws from this overall picture of life laid out in verses two through eight, this picture of life that would be bleak in and of itself, is that in fact, and this is a vital point for us to always keep in mind, in fact, there is a telos to life. In fact, there actually is such a thing as eschatology. There is something that all of this is moving towards, although you wouldn't learn this from verses 2 through 8 alone. First of all, he says, God will judge. Look at this in verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. You know how often that note is struck in the scriptures. Remember when Peter is describing how Jesus taught them to preach and what Jesus taught them to preach? He said he commanded us to preach that he is the one who is appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. And to him, all men must give an account. And that's the starting point, according to Peter, of preaching according to the pattern that Jesus commanded. Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. Because you see, that gives shape and meaning to everything we face in life. That gives clarity about where everything is heading. It's not just an endless, meaningless cycle that we can't figure out. Yes, we can't figure it out entirely. But nonetheless, it is moving toward something. It's moving toward, in in one sense, in one key sense, the judgment of God over all the earth. The book of Hebrews reminds us, it is appointed for man once to die, and after that, to face judgment. The Bible is replete with illustrations and descriptions of what it will be like in the end of the final judgment. Remember what Jesus himself says, as recorded in John 5, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Death isn't the end, isn't the only goal that we're all moving towards. In fact, the Bible tells us there is a resurrection and Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. And so because of that, because of that reality in verse 17, what he reminds us of is the inevitability of death in that sense looks by observation that we're a little bit like the beasts who also die and return to dust, verse 20. But then he reminds us, or he himself is perhaps reminded of this judgment of God. The fact that there is a judgment, the fact that there is a telos, should immediately place the judgment of God as the highest possible issue 
in our lives. The, the one fact on the horizon of your life that ought to govern everything you do, that ought to cause you to see the circumstances of life in an entirely different way. Because that is happening, our primary question has to be a question about facing God in judgment. And of course, the Bible has much to say about this. Just as Peter begins by speaking of the fact that Jesus Christ is the one appointed as the judge of the living and the dead, what does he go on to say? To him, all the prophets bear witness. And then he says that he grants forgiveness of sins to those who believe in his name. He offers forgiveness. He offers vindication at that judgment for those who flee to him in faith, trusting in what he has done, what he has provided, what he has promised for their salvation. We need to remind ourselves that our only hope in life and in death is in this. We're not our own. We're bought with a price that the Lord Jesus Christ is our refuge. And for those for whom Christ is their refuge, this also gives a, a sense of great hope for the future. Because while Ecclesiastes doesn't promise us easy answers in this life or a straight line, between what we do and what we think ought to happen because of what we do. Nonetheless, it does point us to a day when every wrong will be righted, when justice will be carried out, when tears will be wiped away, and when answers will be given. And while we see through a glass dimly now, then we will see face to face. It points us to a day when we'll be like him because we'll see him as he really is. And it's this hope that ought to govern our lives as we live through the complexities of our circumstances. We need to look with clear eyes at the realities of life. It's not simple or straightforward. But nonetheless, this judgment of God, this hope of eternity with Jesus Christ is something that no account of life apart from it uh, can possibly compare to. It gives meaning. It gives purpose. It gives confidence. And it ultimately causes us to realize that the work we do, which Praise God, he gives us some measure of reward for even now, and we accept that gratefully for what it is, a momentary and fleeting pleasure from his hand. Uh, but that work does matter when done for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray together. Our God, as we come to your word, we are once again humbled by your grace to us convicted of our sin, and confronted with reality. 
So, Father, we ask that you might continue this in our hearts by your spirit and cause us to live our lives in light of the truth of your word. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.